This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good morning, Bucknutters. Welcome to the Bucknuts Morning 5 here on Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. I am Dave Biddle. I am joined by the People's Champ, Matt Baxendale. Bax and I are going to answer your questions from the front row message board. Got a lot of good questions to get to. Let's start right at the top. First question comes from Peebles Buck. Bax's question is, with such a high-profile recruit like Corey Foreman and being in a position that Ohio State is in with the best defensive line coach in the country, once Corey Foreman decommitted from Clemson how much did Ohio State communicate with him to see if there was any interest did Ohio State even try to kick the tires on him now from my understanding Ohio State never really felt like they had a good connection with Corey Foreman I I don't know if they're just they just didn't vibe I mean they just there was just never that connection and if if you know anything about how Ryan Day and his staff recruits they target kids and you know they're they're more of a sniper approach not machine gun like they are going to like target a kid and show them all the love in the world. So for some reason, from my understanding, there just was never that connection between Ohio State and Corey Foreman. All right, let's get to the next question back so you can take this one. This is from Tay V. Dub, T-A-Y-V-Dub. If Ohio State doesn't win the national championship this year, backs, are they officially not in the elite top tier of college football? Well, I, I, I don't think that's even remotely conceivable at this point. Um, they, at that point, would have made their fourth playoff berth, right? And nobody else outside of Clemson and Alabama has more than that. Uh, so for, uh, on top of that, who's won the national championships, right? There's been four schools that have won a national championship in the playoff era. And Ohio State's one of them. So I don't think you remotely call that they're not uh, in the elite tier. They're recruiting as well as anybody in the country. And if you look at the last – look at the way the seasons have gone for OSU, right? 2014, they won the title. 2015, they were easily the best team in the country. And they lost one game, and it happened to be too late in the season for them to overcome it to make the playoff. And they happened to lose to the one team that screwed them from getting in the Big Ten championship game. Uh, 2016, they made it when – I don't even want to get into that team, but they made the playoff, right? 2017, uh, let's just say that that was the first of the two straight years where there was sort of a fluke kind of loss that kept them out to a team they should never have lost to, Right. And then last year they got in, and everybody who watched that game, including most Clemson fans, admitted that OSU was almost clearly the better team. So there's been, I think, more bad luck for OSU a bit with the playoff situation the last five years, six years, uh, than trying to say that they're not elite. I think it's pretty clear that Ohio State's an uber-elite team. They're one of the what I've been calling hyper-elites every time we talk to them. The recruiting obviously speaks for himself uh, under Ryan Day and under Urban Meyer, but this is the performance. I mean, Ohio State has lapped the Big Ten at this point. 
The only way Ohio State loses a Big Ten game this year is if they don't have their mental health the way it needs to be and don't have their focus right. Ohio State is clearly an elite team. I, while it would certainly be crushing to lose again, especially to Alabama or Clemson, um, the truth is if they end up losing another game like they did last playoff, there's a certain point in time where you recognize that some things just haven't gone your way. Uh, the basics are absolutely there. OSU is not without a question in my mind. They are an elite team. They are a hyper elite team. They're at the top of the, of the totem pole. And frankly, they could easily go out and win another national championship. Next question comes from Chip Munn. Chip Munn asks, Pro Football Focus has Trey Sermon ranked as the number three running back in the 2021 NFL Draft. How do you rank Sermon both at Ohio State and around the country? In addition, if Sermon is completely recovered from his knee injury and every other Ohio State running back is healthy, what will be the Buckeyes' depth chart at running back? Let's go with his first question first. Um, you know, when I, when I look at how Trey Sermon ranks around the country, I would say he is like top 10, not top five in the country, in my opinion. Um, I, I guess I disagree with PFF there. Now, to be clear, I have not sit, sat there and analyzed every running back in the country, so I would need to take a closer look at that. But off the top of my head, I expect Trey Sermon to be like a top 10 running back in the country this fall because I, we'll get to the next question in a moment. I think there's going to be some sharing of the load. So I have him like maybe like top 10, not top five, but knocking on the door to be a top five running back in the country. What do you think, Bax? Yeah, I think he's a top 10 running back in America right now. Uh, he left a place in uh, – in Oklahoma, they had a couple other guys who took over for him after injury. Uh, but I, genuinely, you look at it right now, there's not a lot of guys who have the same resume that Trey Sermon does. I mean, he's, he's scored in the playoff. He's, he's multiple, his career, he has over 2,000 rushing yards. He has 20-something touchdowns. He's, this isn't like this is some guy who couldn't get on the field, right? This is a big-time running back. Uh, now, I wouldn't put him as necessarily the number one running back in America. But I do think he could end up being a very, very good player. Uh, from the get-go for Ohio State. Uh, I would tell you, first of all, he's still got Travis Etienne back in college next year, which is kind of crazy to think about because it seems like he's been here forever. Um, so he probably comes into the year with the at least the status as the number one guy, right? But after that, I, I think it's a little bit fluid. And there's some, there's some good running backs out there, no question about it. But Trey Sermon, especially since he's healthy coming into things, uh, I, I think he's – Easily a top 10 tailback in America. Uh, now, talking about at Ohio State, what's their running back rotation and depth chart was the other half that, right? And honestly, I see Sermon doing the majority of the carries. I think Master Teague's going to get the ball a lot if he's healthy. But I think Sermon gets the majority of the carries. Um, he's healthy. He's proven. And I think Teague's shown that he can shine in a secondary role. And with him not being fully healthy, I don't think he's necessarily going to be uh, a lock to be able to compete with a fully healthy Trey Sermon who's here for one year. So I think those are your top two guys in, in the running back room. I think if Marcus Crowley's healthy, he could certainly fit into that picture. But I, I think it's going to be Sermon and Teague who have the vast majority of the carries. Yeah, my depth chart would look like this. Trey Sermon, of course, is the starter. And then, again, with Chip's question, the assumption, which is a, a big assumption, um, that all running backs are going to be healthy. Yeah, I'll go Sermon, Teague. Crowley, Steel Chambers. And I think all four of them are going to play. Steel Chambers is not somebody I'm overlooking at all. And he's the only guy that's not coming off, you know, a serious injury or a relatively serious injury. And then Mayan Williams being the true freshman. I, my guess is if the running backs stay healthy, what they'll do with Mayan Williams is the same thing they did with Steel Chambers last year is get him in three or four games, 
you know, keep that red shirt and uh, but at least let them see the field a little bit. But don't count out Steel Chambers. But, yeah, I think it's going to go Sermon, Teague, Crowley, Chambers. Our next question is also from Chip. Chip Munn asks, Bax, if Ryan Day decides to leave Ohio State for an NFL head coaching job, who would be his likely replacement? How would you rank Luke Fickle, Kerry Combs, Brian Hartline, Matt Campbell, and P.J. Fleck as possible replacements and why? I love this question. Go, Bax. Well, Ryan Day's not leaving for a little while anyways. Let's, let's be clear here. I don't think there's any scenario where Ryan Day up and leaves for the NFL like next year. Right. I just don't see that happening. I agree. So if that happens, it's three, four, five years down the road and we have a couple of national championships under Ryan's belt. And then he goes, I want to be like Pete Carroll and win a Natty and a Super Bowl. Um, if it does happen, uh, first of all, I, I don't think Kerry Combs is an option right now. Um, Brian Hartline certainly an excellent recruiter, but and his guy's technique at wide receiver is excellent, but I don't know anything about if anybody really has a clue whether Brian Hartline's going to translate to being an offense coordinator or a head coach, right? Um, we can guess, but it's still too early for him. Uh, I think Luke Fickle would get probably the heaviest consideration because of the success he's had at Cincinnati. Uh, he's come a long way from 2011 where Luke Fickle was the guy that, you know, he had a rough year. I think he got an unfair shake in terms of head coaching perception because of the way 2011 went. You know, people think you're at Ohio State, you roll your helmets on the field, and you should win 10 games. Uh, not knowing that, of course, Luke Fickle did not have a starting quarterback, did not have his best wide receiver, didn't have a starting running back, didn't have a starting left tackle uh, for a, a good portion of the season. He had to have a freshman quarterback or Joe Balserman for the whole year, and that's just not the way you win football games. So I think if Luke keeps winning 10 games down at Cincinnati and keeps rebuffing everybody who's coming after him, he could easily end up being the guy. Uh, as for Campbell and Fleck, I think Campbell has a better shot than Fleck because of his Ohio ties. I think there's too many good options for Ohio State to go after P.J. Fleck. I think he's a little bit too much outside of the uh, established culture at Ohio State and the established traditions at Ohio State. I, I, I think that a, a school – if there's a blue blood that's going to hire a P.J. Fleck type, it's going to be a desperate blue blood that understands that their special traditions aren't getting the job done. And, of course, I'm talking about a school that's about three hours north of Ohio State that might be looking really hard at P.J. Fleck in the not-so-distant future. Uh, I, I think Matt Campbell would certainly get a stronger look than P.J. Fleck. So, end of the day, I think the number one guy who gets a look is Luke Fickle, though. And then after that, it'd probably be Campbell if he's still available. But Campbell, one of these years, he's going to leave Iowa State for a better job. He can't stay there forever. Um, and the fact is, is that Iowa State's a place where it's amazing where you win even half your games. And Campbell's had them in contention for the Big 12. So, somebody's going to be smart and snap him up. So, I, I think Fickle is the guy today. But, you know, we're talking five years from now, and who knows? Five years from now, Brian Hartline might be the clear choice. We don't know. So uh, I will say this. I don't think Kerry Combs will be the choice at any point. Um, I think Kerry's already getting a little up there in age um, to the point where if in five years from now we're looking for a head coach, they may be wondering how much longer it is until Coach Combs retires at that point. Is he going to stick around? Like, is Kerry Combs going to be coaching college football in 10 years? Or is he going to be a really excited retired guy giving speeches before the Michigan game, right? So I don't think Combs would get it for that reason alone. Um, but, yeah, as of today, I think Luke Fickle would have to be at the top of the list. You're probably right. Um, I'm still not 
completely sold on Luke Fickle. I root like crazy for him. I have become a Cincinnati Bearcats football fan, other than when they're playing Ohio State, which happened this past season. And I love what he's doing down there. But he's not playing in a Power 5 conference. When he, he seems like when he gets big games, and I'm not talking about playing UCLA when they're you know, not really UCLA. And I mean, he's taking care of business, don't get me wrong. But I look at what Matt Campbell has done. It's really hard to win at Iowa State. It's not like he's winning big there, but it is hard to have a consistent winning record there, and he's done that. And P.J. Flex, same deal. When he was at Western Michigan, he went 13-0 and his final year. Well, 13-1, and they lost to Wisconsin in a close game in the, in the uh, Cotton Bowl. And then what he's doing at Minnesota now, I mean, that is just, you know, I, I like both those guys a lot. Um, and I like Brian Hartline, too. I, I do think he is a rising star in the profession. I think you articulated it very well, though, Bax. We still would need to see him be more than a position coach before he'd even be considered to be the head coach at Ohio State. But my goodness, if you can pick a rising star in the profession all across college football, I might put Brian Hartline number one as far as young coaches and just the meteoric rise that he's had and what he's doing with recruiting and just how the wide receivers play for him. Just I love everything about Hartline. So this is a real tough question. I like all of those guys. I tell you what, if I had to go with one, I'd probably pick Matt Campbell. All right, let's go to the next question. This is from Buckeye Jug. He says, who do you think will be the next 2021 recruit to commit? Who will be the next 2022 recruit to commit? I, I can take this one. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I mean, I, I checked in with the Dean of Ohio State Football Recruiting to make sure I was giving you guys good information here. So this is really coming from the Dean. Hudson Wolf could be the next in the 2021 class. For those who don't know, he is the number nine tight end in the country, number 225 overall player in the country, four-star prospect out of Tennessee, Savannah, Tennessee. And, yeah, that would mean they would have two tight ends in the class with Sam Hart and Hudson Wolf. So that would mean probably – well, not, that would mean probably. I mean, definitely no Jack Pugh in the class, the young man from here uh, in the Columbus area at Hilliard Bradley. So it sounds like Hudson Wolf could be the next to pop in the 2021 class, but you never know. As for 2022, this is a lot harder. Now, Gabe Powers is the number one player in Ohio in the 2022 class. Young man from, again, Central Ohio kid, Marysville, Ohio. I love that Jack Sawyer is the number one player in the state, uh, local kid from Columbus. And then in the very next class, you got Gabe Powers as the number one uh, player in the, in the state of Ohio. Um, now, Gabe Powers says he's going to wait a while. I think there's no question he's going to be a Buckeye. But he says he's going to wait a while. Now, if he changes his mind and pops early, it's going to be Ohio State, and he could be the next. So if I had to give an answer, it's Gabe Powers. But, I, you know, if he sticks with his guns, he's not going to commit anytime soon. All right, let's get to the next question, Bax. The final question of the show. We can go on for this one. This is a really good one, too. This is from Noonan's 40. Bax, if there are minimal to no fans in the stands this season, as I hope isn't the case, but it could be, he says in parentheses. What is the toughest regular season game on Ohio State's schedule? I know of a certain nightmare that involves a lot of white that would be made less stressful. What say thee, Bax? <laughs> well, so the whiteout game is one of those situations at Penn State where all of us remember the ones that don't go right and sort of have a mental block to forget how many times OSU's gone in and beat the whiteout. Right. We all remember 2005. Right. We always all remember it was 2016 was the blocked field goal game. Well, every other whiteout we've gone to, Ohio State's won. Some of them in blowout fashion. Like nobody goes, oh man, remember the whiteout in 2007? No, you don't. Todd Beckman threw four touchdown passes. OSU won by 30 points. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I think the whiteout gets, you know, it gets credit whenever OSU loses. It's one of those things where it's like OSU lost the game. It must have been the whiteout. OSU lost the game in 2016 because they didn't call timeout before trying to kick a field goal to go up by seven, and they didn't get set, and the, punk, or the kick got blocked. You know, OSU lost in 2016 because 
the, the Penn State completed two giant jump ball passes, which was all Trace McSorley could do, and he happened to have NFL receivers on his roster that year. Uh, 20, 2005 they lost because Tom Bahali had the game of his life. You know, the whiteout didn't do jack. So Penn State's still going to be good. It's still going to be a tough game. It'll just be easier for Ohio State to hear their call. And if anything, sometimes when you're on the road, you come together as a team because it's you versus everybody else in that stadium. You know? And I can tell you some of OSU's losses the last couple of years had nothing to do with the crowd. I was at that Purdue loss. That crowd wasn't anything. It was OSU not being ready to rock and roll and Purdue being more than ready to go, you know? So, look, I think the fans' impact, it's, it's a big deal because we all care, and it's a big environment. But I think it gets overstated. Oregon is going to be no more or less of a difficult game this year, whether or not there are fans in Autzen. Uh, I, I think there are very few places that the home field advantage is so pronounced that the visiting team has difficulties, right? Um, beyond a, like a false start here or there. And now that can change a game. We know it can change a game, right? Uh, but in the end of the day, especially an elite team like Ohio State that has such a talent edge. Like if Ohio State was like number 15 in the country, oh, I'd be relieved. I'd be thrilled, Right that they didn't have to go the whiteout. Uh, whenever all things are equal, yeah, the crowd can make a small difference. But when you have such a talent advantage like Ohio State does, it, they're going to beat Oregon. Crowd or no crowd, they're going to beat Oregon. Oregon is coming in with a new quarterback uh, versus a, a Heisman frontrunner in Justin Fields. Oregon has a talented defense, but so does Ohio State. Ohio State is a better coaching staff. They're going to win at Oregon. Uh, at Penn State, Penn State still has Sean Clifford as their quarterback, and I'm sorry. But unless Penn State gets somebody better at quarterback, they're not beating Ohio State. So, I, to me, the hardest game of the schedule, I, I thought it was Penn State from the start, and I think it still is going to be Penn State. But I don't think that really significantly changes because of a whiteout that Ohio State's gone something like 8-2 and two against the last 10 times they've played in it or something like that. It's, it's, really, it's legitimately something like that. Um, if you go back and you look at all the years that they've gone over to Penn State and won in the whiteout. So... You know, I want the fans to be there. The fans are a great part of it. And, you know, the fans can influence games in certain directions. I mean, if Ohio State's up by 10 and, you know, they pick the ball off, the crowd loses its mind, momentum hits the other team hard, right? That's the impact of the crowd. The crowd allows you to exacerbate the situations in the game a little bit. But when you're a team like OSU where you're not playing an equally talented team until a playoff situation, I don't think it makes their schedule significantly easier that if they're playing in a quiet field in central Pennsylvania or they're playing in a madhouse in central Pennsylvania. Bottom line is Ohio State's still a heavy favorite to win that game, probably by a touchdown. So, you know, I'll go with Penn State, but that answer really isn't altered in my mind because of the, of the crowd situation. I mean, am I out of my mind here, Dave? No, I do think Penn State is the better team compared to Oregon. I don't think there's a huge gap, but I, I look, Oregon's losing a ton of guys. I mean, they've lost a ton of guys. So um, I would need to see who they're going to – I mean, they're losing four starting offensive linemen, two of which were draft picks. Um, they do have a really good offensive lineman. Their one returning starter is going to be a, probably a first-round pick and an early first-round pick in the 2021 draft. But they lost Justin Herbert, of course, and they've lost a bunch of guys. So I think it's going to be Penn State. Um, I love that you brought up the 07 game backs because it reminds me of one of the funniest quotes ever. People that think Jim Trestle 
wasn't funny. You didn't know Jim Trestle very well. He had a very, he was very witty. And if you're a diehard Buckeye fan, I'm sure you know that. But if you didn't know Jim, you thought Jim Trestle was just this robot, you know, the Senator nickname and all that. Trust me, he, he was very funny. And here's, here's a, here's a great example. In 07, after the Penn state game, they asked him about the whiteout conditions and he goes, Oh, I thought they were wearing white for us. Like we were wearing white. I thought the whiteout was for us. <laughs> <laughs> Penn, State, <laughs> Penn State reporters were like, what? How, how could he say that? Because like, he's joking. He's trolling you. Uh, I know you weren't expecting that to happen from Trestle, but he will troll you a little bit. Um, it's like after the first Michigan game, a reporter at the, 20, the 2001 Michigan game, Trestle's debut, and he made good on the 310-day speech. He's sitting there in the – I wasn't covering that game. I just remember watching the press conference, and a reporter from Michigan asked him, well, you're certainly sitting here basking in the glow. And, and Trestle looks up at him and goes, well, I don't know if I'm basking. And just little stuff to me, that's just funny. Like, to me, just I, I don't know if I'm basking. He just goes right back at him. Just, I, it's just little stuff like that is so funny from Trestle. But, yeah, I think it's going to be Penn State. I, I think Oregon's going to be a relatively tough game. And don't forget, Oregon looks at Ohio State like we look at Clemson. Ohio State has beaten Oregon every time they've played them and in some very high-profile games, such as the national championship game, such as the Rose Bowl. Oregon won some Ohio State, so don't forget that. And – Penn State looks at Ohio State as their biggest rival. That's why James Franklin gets them up to play Ohio State. They played them tough in Ohio Stadium, and usually they, they play them. You know, there was the one exception, but they usually – actually, under James Franklin, has there even been a blowout? I don't think so. I think every game has been close, and he's won one, right? Yeah, he won in 2016, right? Um, but since then, Ohio State's biggest margin of victory, I want to say, is – 11 points. No, no, he was the coach in 2015, wasn't he? Yeah. The horseshoe. Remember the blackout game? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right. That that one out. But, and then they blew him out when they had uh, Hack. No, it wasn't him. It was Bill O'Brien was the Hackenberg game, right? Oh, that was 2013. Yes. 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 My freshman year at Ohio State, 1994, I sat there in the dorm watching the 63-14 loss against Penn State. And there were Ohio State football players watching it with us, like Jerry Rudzinski, because they were redshirting that year. They lived in the dorms, and they don't travel if they're redshirting. So we're sitting there, and these guys that I got to know pretty well, like, are just sitting there stunned. I'm stunned. 63-14. I'm like, look, we'll never see that again. So that 2013 game against Bill O'Brien, to make it 63-14, to that was sweet revenge even many years later. But, yeah, you're right. The 2015 game, I think that started out kind of close. I think Von Bell ended up having a pick six, and then the Buckeyes ran away with it. But usually, James Franklin gets his guys up for that game, and they view Ohio State as their biggest rival, and Ohio State doesn't view Penn State as its biggest rival, of course. So No, the mental, they don't. The mental side of sports is huge. So I, I'm going to go with Penn State, but that's, that's a good question. You know, All Dave, right. that thing with the, the whole rivalry with Penn State, and by the way, folks, Ohio State is 6-2 and two in their last eight games at Penn State. Uh, going back to the 2003 game that Ohio State won at the last second when Penn State missed like a 55-yard field goal short. Um, I still vividly remember that game too. But the Penn State rivalry thing is one of the weirdest situations in sports to me. I remember before I got into Ohio State, uh, the summer before I got to go to, out to Ohio State, I went to a party at my high school, and a girl who was a year older than me was there, and she came back from Penn State, and we were talking, and she's like, so are you going to school next year? And I said, Ohio State. She goes, oh, I go to Penn State. You're our biggest rivals. And now I hadn't started at OSU yet. I've told people many times I didn't. I never grew up in Ohio, right? So I knew the basics. I hadn't really immersed myself yet. The most I've been involved was I got accepted to OSU and decided to go there. And then we beat Michigan for the first time under Trestle the next week. So that's my initiation for Ohio State, right? So I'm still fairly new to the whole thing 20 years ago at the time. 
And I look at her and I'm really confused. I'm like, uh, Ohio State's rivals Michigan. What are you talking about? And she goes, no, you're our number one rival. We hate you guys. And I remember thinking that was really weird. <laughs> that, that is Penn State in a nutshell, right? Because they absolutely positively refuse to admit that Pitt is their rival, right? It is like this insult to them, like to say that Pitt is your rival. And they're like, we don't know. They're, they're peons compared to us. It's almost like Michigan and Michigan State, except if Michigan State was like in a different conference or something. And, and Penn State looks at us. And one of my best friends went to Penn State. And he told me, he said, we look at Ohio State as what we should be. So from an athletic department point of view, Ohio State is their aspirational goal. Ohio State is like what they see as the best run, biggest athletic department in the, in the country, their number one rival in football, all this. Penn State is chasing us like we're the big brother who's never really seen them as, you know, a, an equal competition, even if they win every now and then, right? And Penn State absolutely craves that recognition from us of them as a rival. It's like a visceral reaction when we don't call them a rival. But the reality is they're not a rival. We still care more about the Michigan game despite having bludgeoned Michigan for two decades, right? When Penn State has legitimately been a much bigger threat. And I have to repeatedly tell Penn State fans, yes, yes, yes. You guys are a much bigger threat to Ohio State than Michigan is. No arguing. In fact, since 2001, uh, you guys have beaten us four or five times. Michigan's only beaten us twice. I get it. But it's not a rivalry to them. It's, it's, it's like slapping a medieval guy in the face with his glove and challenging him to a duel when you don't admit it's a rivalry. So that's why that game is always the biggest fear because the biggest key is their players feel that way too. Their players see Ohio State as the guy to beat. And they're good enough at Penn State with the talent that Franklin brings in to make it interesting. That's why most of these games have been relatively close. Even last year, looked like it was going to be a blowout. I brought some Penn State fans with me to the game, and they left at halftime thinking this is going to get hideous. And somehow Ohio State only ended up winning by 11. So, yeah, that's the toughest game on the schedule. And going back to the original question, it's the toughest game, no matter whether there are fans or not. Great stuff from the People's Champ, Matt Baxendale. And thank you to all the listeners out there for tuning into the show. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question on the Front Row Message Board. If you like the show, you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. It really helps. Thanks again to Matt Baxendale, and thanks to all the listeners out there. Hope everyone has a great day. Let's hear that Buckeye swag, best damn band in the land. sports mixed with your pop culture along with humor and celebrity interviews your earbuds are enjoying the rich eisen show dan orlovsky are you still a Jaden daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy i think the three things that make it stand out for me are number one i think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft every quarterback in the nfl is accurate he's got the best on tape number two most transferable stuff to the nfl and then i think the third thing is pocket peace search for the rich eisen show on youtube or wherever you listen